Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Good afternoon. I'm Jocelyn Foreman. I'm a professor here at Monroe College. I'm an attorney as well. I was a former assistant district attorney in the Bronx County District Attorney's Office, and now I'm here at Monroe full-time. I will be today's moderator of the True Crime Blind Justice podcast. Today's topic is narcotics on the rise in the looming threat of fentanyl. And we have two guest speakers, Paul Lickbaugh and Michelle Raisner, and she is director of the KSAC program here at Monroe College and the School of Criminal Justice and Social Justice at Monroe. She's a licensed certified rehabilitation counselor and a licensed mental health coordinator. And she'll tell you a little bit about herself. And also with us today is Paul Lickbaugh. And Paul is a former member of the New York City Police Department. He's a director here at the criminal justice program for Monroe College. He was a captain with NYPD for 27 years, and he recently got his Doctor of Education from St. John Fisher University in organizational leadership, and we'll get started. So the first question I have for both of you, how does one become involved, and why is it so prevalent in our adult and young adult teenage population? Well, sometimes there could be pain medicines prescribed to individuals and even young persons for an injury or something of that nature where they can become dependent on the the drug, but they might not be addicted. But being dependent could lead to addiction. So that's one way. Another way is, you know, having the medications in medicine cabinets where they have access to it. And then just the whole rise, peer pressure from our young people and even adults have those incidents where they're involved with maybe some type of injury where they're prescribed opioid pain med, morphine or oxycodone, or one of those types of uh, medications which can lead to addiction. And then some people are predisposed to addiction that if they use, there is a high likelihood that they will become addicted. I want to break that down just a little bit. What's the difference between dependency and addiction? And talk a little bit about people who would be predisposed. A predisposition to addiction has to do with maybe something genetic, maybe in their family, you know, the genes. Doesn't mean that they're going to be addicted, but they have a higher likelihood of becoming addicted if they begin to use because of the different genes that they possess. And so also with the difference between, firstly, DSM-4 had abuse and dependence, but it changed with the diagnostic statistical manual, that's the DSM-5. So the addiction criteria is mild, moderate, or severe. So if a person has mild symptoms based off of a criteria that has been established, which there's 11 criteria. So if they meet the criteria or say yes, or they're experiencing two to three of that criteria, then they're categorized as mild. Moderate goes from four to five and then six and over goes 
to severe. So it's a whole process of of, um, assessment to determine, you know, the level of care a person needs and the degree of their addiction or dependence. So it's just, it's just not like we just call it. We have to sit down and have an interview and gap their information so that we can determine, you know, Mm -hmm. where they are in their addiction. But I might add to that Mm -hmm. with the fentanyl, it doesn't matter where you are in it because it's being mixed into substances that people just thought that they were just taking. And so some of what's occurring now is, is they don't know what they're taking. And so, and, and then because of the high potency of fentanyl, it puts them in a position to become dependent even quicker or death. Yeah. So fentanyl is 50 to hundred times more potent than morphine, which is an, in and of itself is an incredibly powerful, powerful, powerful drug. And the, the fentanyl we're seeing now, this is, you know, that stuff that's made at a lab here in the United States, and we know exactly what's in it. It's made elsewhere. And uh, shall we say the quality control is not what we would expect from here in the United States. You really have no idea what's in it. And it may or may not, you know, how potent is it? Is, is, you know, no one has any idea until they actually consume it. And these mixtures that they're selling on the streets are, are you know, unknown. And that's one of the reasons that overdoses are up is because of those mixtures. Is it because of those mixtures that it makes the drug so dangerous and it makes them more likely to overdose because they don't even know that they're being exposed to fentanyl? Yeah, that's that, that's an issue. And, and another issue is when there is an overdose, very often the people will find out about it and they'll they'll run to wherever that drug is being sold and to buy more because it, it's the, the people who are addicted want that powerful, more powerful drug. And so sales actually go up when somebody dies, which would seem to be incredible, but that's that's how that typically works. So word travels fast in that, in that community of people who, who want it, and, and sales actually increase. So, and again, that what does that lead to? Again, at least it ends up leading to more deaths. And so what are the statistics regarding drug overdoses and deaths compared to now to back when, when you were referring to heroin? They've been on the rise. If you look at 2021, there was 106,000 people who died of um, drug overdoses in the United States. And that's a huge increase from, you know, even a few years ago. It's been steadily rising. But if you go back to, say, 2000, we had about 20,000 people died of uh, overdoses from all drugs in the United States. And, and like I said, it's been 2021, it was up to 106,000. And of those 106,000 in 2021, 80,000 of them were from opioids of some persuasion or another. So that is a huge percentage of the, you know, the increase is being driven by that. Like I said, heroin had almost disappeared from the scene in the, you know, the 80s and 90s, the AIDS epidemic tore through that population of people who were using heroin, which at that point was all people who were using needles. And since they were sharing needles, uh, many of them got sick and died from of AIDS, you know, AIDS, HIV. And the drug almost disappeared from the scene. And then uh, it was gone for a while. And then unfortunately, it came roaring right back. And it's in, uh, like I said, it's a new generation. It's also in places that we've never seen it before. So back in the 80s and 90s, it was here in New York City, but you saw it in places like Spanish Harlem, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Heroin was almost unheard of in the suburbs. And today it's the complete opposite. It's still available in Spanish Harlem and the Lower East Side, places like that. But you see it in suburban communities. It is there in the suburban communities. And that's something, like I said, was unheard of 20, 30 years ago to find heroin up there. Well, 
You said there's a new generation of heroin users. Is it being used the same way it was in the 80s prior to the AIDS and HIV, or is it used differently now? Heroin is still primarily injected, which is what they did back in the day. So that, that really hasn't changed. And that's how heroin is, is typically used. However, there is some, sometimes they smoke heroin also. And there's also, um, we'll do you know, pills, which is something that we often see. Often, some of our people, they start out with oxycodone and oxycontin. These are other opiate medications that are in pill form. You know, you can get on a prescription, but once the prescription runs out, those pills are sold on the, on the street corners in, in the city. You can buy them, but they're very expensive. Those pills can run $50, $60, $70 per one pill. So that's very expensive. Most people, that's out of reach, while heroin sells for about 10 bucks. So there's a big difference in price, and that's... You know, obviously, obviously an issue. And that's what very often happens to people is they buy the pills and then when they complain to their dealer that they can't afford them, the dealer will suggest heroin. They say, hey, why don't you try this? And then once they try it, that's that. For the dealers, the reason they mix the fentanyl with the heroin, there's, there's two rationales for them to do it. One is that the fentanyl is considerably cheaper than heroin. Heroin is a very expensive drug for um, drug dealers to buy. It's uh, cost them a fortune. So if they can break it with something considerably cheaper, it means their profits go up considerably higher. And also, since fentanyl is such a powerful drug, it can make their product that much stronger and therefore more desirable to addicts. And so there's actually an incentive for them to use stuff like, like, like fentanyl. And fentanyl is readily available to them, so they can get it. They can get it, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they have no problem getting a hold of it. So what are some of the signs of an overdose? The respiration suppressed, mm -hmm. the breathing slows, definitely because of mixing the drugs together. You know, fentanyl and heroin, both are depressants. And so they will suppress breathing. So many times when a person overdoses, it's because they just stop breathing because, you know, their equilibrium has gone all the way down so that they're they're not balanced in terms of how they should their body should be functioning and so you know the eyes are blue or purple or their skin is purple but you know and i would also add that i believe and just studies show that heroin has always been there in all of the different communities it's just that because of the high incidences of overdoses and the different ways that those communities are being impacted, we hear more of a voice now coming from communities that we hadn't ordinarily uh, heard from because now it's affecting their family or their community in ways that they're speaking up. So they're coming forth, they're speaking up, but it's been there. And the roots of transmission are the same. It's through ingestion, through the nasal. Um, they could do it subcutaneously through their skin by skin popping or directly into the vein. And the quickest route of transmission is through the vein. And just a lot of the overdoses that we're seeing are as a direct result of individuals. They're believing that they're getting something that they know that they can handle and so they might not even be addicted to the degree that we, you know, identify addiction, but they mm -hmm. just got a batch 
of something and it could be methamphetamine, you know, one of the uh, cocaine. They're mixing fentanyl with everything. It could be in the marijuana as they're smoking it. So they don't know. And they could just innocently, like there was a report of the group of individuals that were in a mall. I remember where, but they just went out for the break to, to get high in the car and they're all overdosed, all of them overdosed. So, and they thought they were going to go get high and go back to work. Yeah, that was Paramus. That was Paramus. Uh, in New Jersey? Okay. Yeah, that's what we Yeah, in the Hackensack Mall. Yeah, Hackensack, you're right. Hackensack. Okay. Yeah. Is there any way to treat an overdose? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing, the immediacy issue is a naloxone. And that's what now a lot of police departments carry that. EMTs carry it. And, and that's a nasal spray. You know, that that's for the immediacy. Um, the rest is more, Michelle, is your department. <laughs> for, for the well, world. no, that's that's true. It's naloxone, or they call it Narcan. Right. Mm-hmm. And they just started to offer the nasal spray. But the thing with fentanyl is because of the potency of it, whereas it might take a couple of puffs or hits of um, the naloxone for heroin, the person that overdoses on fentanyl, you're going to have to do it a couple of times because it's, it's the, the, the potency of that drug is stronger. And to help that person, you know, come to, it's going to take a little work and then you're going to have to get them to the hospital because um, they can go back into it. A lot of times you've seen individuals who the police came, they administered Narcan and the person got up and they were ready to go and they wouldn't, they refused to go to the hospital, but they can still go back into the overdose if they're not properly assessed and treated. So it's a big problem and it it definitely has affected our young people who think they know what they don't know, but they think they know (laughs) that they they think they know. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying things and it's just so sad, you know, looking at the increase of the overdose deaths, especially through 2020, you know, and even before 2020, you were getting a lot of overdoses. And I don't know if they had pinpointed it then that it was fentanyl until they finally realized and started testing it and looking at, you know, what was actually happening. Do you think that the increase in 2020 was related to the isolation and being locked down from the virus? Absolutely. I think um, it, it, it played a part. You know, I think that underlying individuals already had that struggle with anxiety, depression. And so it just exacerbated it um, during the pandemic because there was, you know, shelter in place. They were in isolation and, you know, just that whole pandemic mentally, and especially when they couldn't go to treatment. Um, I had a home for women and they couldn't go into the treatment agency. They had to do everything virtual. And, you know, we know because we shifted in the college to a virtual platform. And Mm -hmm. for those individuals who need experiential contact, the routine that's established, it was huge. So drugs was their go-to strategy originally. So Mm -hmm. it became what they used. And unfortunately, a lot of them overdosed. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the epidemic certainly couldn't have helped the situation. And the added stress from the epidemic certainly added mm-hmm. stress to people, which was made them more likely to use. And also, there was, you know, honestly, there wasn't that much for people to do. You know, basically, right. everything was closed. Mm-hmm. So, 
it limited your uh, outlets, <laughs> the things you could do. And you know, unfortunately, some this is what some people picked up. Mm-hmm. So how did being locked down affect you counseling people who were in drug programs or other mental health programs? Well, I didn't necessarily have um, individuals that were in the drug program, but I just uh, talked to a lot of individuals with anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. huge anxiety and depression. And if they did have the substance abuse, you you know, because during the pandemic, everything that they were accustomed to being involved in in person was virtual. So if they went to AA meetings or NA meetings or Narcotic Anonymous, those meetings, they were all virtual. So it was so challenging. So now they had to now search out, you know, virtual AA or 12-step meetings. They had to do the virtual treatment agencies. And then the other piece to that is the um, community supervision, probation, parole, They didn't supervise properly because they were, you know, not wanting to go into the homes to supervise, to exercise uh, the supervision. They didn't want to meet in person. So some of that was virtual. Um, I know an individual where the PO wanted to do a home visit, but it was virtual. So it left room for those individuals to continue to use drugs, not be brought in to be mandated to treatment. And ultimately they just, you know, became a danger to themselves. But, you know, I think the pandemic affected not just the individuals, but the systems that they were connected to because they weren't functioning as normal. So Paul, this question is for you, if you know, what does fentanyl do to the body? Why is it so much more potent than morphine or heroin? It's the, the composition of the drug mm. and, you know, the way it was developed. I mean, it was developed as a painkiller. So obviously it was deliver- It was done, done deliberately. So who knows, again, exa- exactly what's in it. And like I said, the mix. But what it does is it affects the brain. And the, the area of the brain that control pain and emotions, it affects them. You know, the body gets used to it and your tolerance starts to build up. And that's why people start to need more and more to get the same high that they used to have. And that's very often why people, um, you know, overdose sometimes. But what the effects are is it can cause drowsiness, it can cause nausea, and extreme, like an extreme happiness, euphoria that people get from using the drug. And that's some of the reasons that people keep using it. But it, it can also lead to things like problems breathing and ultimately unconsciousness. And, you know, sometimes you see people that are confused. And these are all things that can come out of from the fentanyl. I had a question for either one of you, if you answer, to talk about this new zombie drug. I believe the actual name is Xylazine. Yeah, the Xylazine in Los Angeles. Yes. Which is also a tranquilizer for animals, cows and horses, right? And so when you think of Xylazine and then you think of them cutting it with fentanyl, that's like just a lethal dose of death. And so even with the research and just looking at how those individuals in Los Angeles have been affected, I mean, it is devastating to where they can't even function there, you know, because when that system goes down, those opioids bind to the receptors in the brain and it causes that drowsiness. It causes a person to be lethargic, but they just look like they're standing up 
unconscious, basically. And it's similar to back in the 60s or the 70s, where uh, this might be a little bit more intense, but there were so many drug users through the streets of New York and Harlem and different places, you could be driving and you could see individuals nodding, almost going down to, you know, touch their feet. And this, this zombie drug in Los Angeles, I think it's, it's even more lethal and it's definitely impacting the homeless population there. And usually the homeless population usually has ready access to things because they're there. And so whatever is, you know, being uh, distributed, whatever they're talking about, they're there, even if they're used as individuals that sample products so that they can tell the dealer if it's good or not. And then that, you know, starts that whole spiral down for addiction. So that's a scary, scary drug there. Well, do you think it'll migrate to other parts of the country? Well, it is to some degree. The article talks about it from San Francisco to Philadelphia. Philadelphia has over one third of the overdose deaths involved with that drug. And also Rhode Island has about 40% of their samples that were tested and they contain xylazine. And I think, you know, whoever the dealers are, whatever they can do to to say that their drug is more potent, they're going to do it. Yeah, I, it's been found in 48 of the 50 states, so it's sold in some quantities everywhere. But mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think we see much of it here in New York. But as you said, uh, out west, they've, they've, seen, they've seen more of it. But as the director Razor said, you know, the dealers like anything that's powerful gets more buyers and henceforth gets their attention. That's scary. <laughs> no, it really is. And look, with what New York City is, just using New York City as an example, what the city is contending with with the influx of the migrants and mm-hmm. the you know increase of the population. The last thing we need is for yeah. those individuals to gain access to you know the different types of drugs. So I don't know what what the summer holds, but I know it's going to be an interesting one. And also, Narcan doesn't work on that, although they're still using it anyway, just in case that there is an opioid base mixed into it. But it doesn't work typically on it. So that's another problem because it's not opioid based. So for Narcan to work, it has to be an opioid based drug, which xylazine is not. But since people are taking it as a mixture, they're using the Narcan on them anyway, may or may not work. And the xylazine is legal because they're using it, you know, the veterinarians are using it for cows and horses. So what Los Angeles decided to do was monitor it to see, you know, its impact and effect. And because it's a legal drug there. But if it's for cows or horses and, and it's coming through a vet, wouldn't the, I guess the ranchers or whoever owns the house and a cow, wouldn't they need prescriptions? <laughs> well, now, you know, there's the underground. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. People are going to find a way. Traditional <laughs> answer you would, but it's, I think it's like anything else that gets diverted. <laughs> I know <laughs> they're gonna, I yeah, know. they're gonna, and labs, you know, they're mm-hmm. they're mixing things and you know mixing different drugs together, trying to create potency and trying to be the one that has the best drug to offer so that they get the most sales. And so, even in and what is this in Los Angeles, the overdoses skyrocketed over the last three years by fifty percent from 52,000 in 2016 to 106,000 in 2021. 
Wow, that's that's a large increase. It's also that they're fake prescriptions. And look, people have access to certain types of prescriptions online, which is unbelievable that they can get different types of prescriptions or drugs and maybe lace them mm-hmm. with, with the fentanyl or lace them. So some of them, they didn't make the pill, so to speak, but they may lace it with the fentanyl or the xylazine. But to mix or cut Xylazine with fentanyl. I'm like, oh my, you know, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's like who made, who sat down, and thought that was a good idea. Oh God. It's frightening. So the other thing I want to just touch on a little bit is the opioid courts that New York State has, like a drug treatment court, and how does that affect drug users? Is it helpful? So it, it depends. So it gives them an option to go into treatment and then you know have the case dismissed. The problem is that a lot of them aren't successful at completing the program. And that's, I think, one of the one of the issues that I think Michelle can talk about better than me. But that's one of the issues is how many you know actually complete the program through drug courts. Yeah, drug courts are a good idea. There's different criteria mm-hmm. depending on the, the seriousness of your crime and, you know, what has to take place in terms of your being prosecuted. So you might not be eligible, even though you have opiate addiction. But many of the, like Rikers Island and out here where I live in Suffolk County, there's drug and alcohol treatment inside of the facility. So they're they're staffed with trained social workers, addictions counselors, and then they have the teams in the community that work with the individuals at the court to do the assessment to see if they're eligible. But like Dr. Lichborn said, the person has to, you know, buy into treatment and use the benefits of treatment. So the, there, there's some good successes, but there's more that are not successful. And then just when you thought that person was successful, the most devastating thing could happen where they go to drug court, they complete it. And now here they have a big graduation and different treatment centers come to the court building and they celebrate and they talk about the person. And then sometimes, unfortunately, that same person does good for a while and even ends up overdosing. I worked in the Suffolk County jail and had a young lady and, you know, she came to every group that we had. She said she had a warrant. She was there through drug court and also had a, a warrant that had a hold on her. And one day she went to court on a, on a Thursday or yeah, on a Friday and they let her out at about 12 a.m. because that went into the next day and she wanted to be released at that day. Mm-hmm. And she had told those in, in, the, in the prison that she had one last stash hidden because she's been in jail for about six months and she went home and she died that same night. She overdosed oh my from that that stress. So she had access to treatment, the treatment court. So it it just depends. And she she was on the telephone. I actually, I mean, I was just, I, you know, it was just so unbelievable. But it's believable, you know. I went viewed her body, and you know, because I did good work with her. But she she said she was going to do it one last time, and then report to her probation officer in the morning. So. That was like she was looking forward to doing it one last time and then she would be all right. What makes them think that that is even possible? 
Well, that's the insanity of addiction <laughs> to make you think that, you know, you, you, you have a, a control and you could do it. And a lot of times, even before people surrender themselves to be incarcerated, they're going to go what they call for their last hurrah, their, you know, their last run. They're going to get high because this is going to be the last time. But for many of them, it isn't the last time. So, but that's, that's, that's addiction, the nature of it. They call it baffling, insidious, and, you know, it, it's just unpredictable. Addiction will present itself in so many ways that you can't even make it up. Wow. And each person is different. I understand that. Just I, when you, yeah, when you wanted someone to get it and, you know, unfortunately they don't. How many people would you say were truly, truly successful that were able to walk the straight and the narrow? And what would you consider successful? Well, I think um, a period of sobriety. So in treatment, we look at the stages of change. And so there's like pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. So maintenance, that phase or stage is like six months. But, you know, that's great, but, you know, they need to go on. And so my recommendation for people in treatment is to complete the treatment program up to a year, depending on the severity of the addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's just the beginning. You need some therapy now. You need to, just because you went to treatment, there's still underlying issues and areas that have to be addressed so that people can be successful and so that they can have support. Because when you think of a cancer patient and think of all the services and the resources that are available and the support groups and that type of access has to be there and people have to use it because they could be there and they they just don't use it. So, you know, um, but I, I know people that are leading productive lives, gotten their children back, gotten nurses' licenses back, you know, got the different things restored, working. I've mentored women that are working. One got her license back, her driver's license, her nurse's license. She completed a KSEC now. She's been working for close to 10 years. So, you know, that consistency and stability and knowing that you cannot use. You just can't do it because it's it's going to spiral down and you never know where it's going to take you. Well, with fentanyl and xylazine being so new, do you think down the road, people who are addicted to these drugs could possibly find recovery in a K-Sex program or something? Or is it too, still too new to tell? No, I think they're going to, I mean, if, depending on, you know, how, how severe their addiction is, they're going to need some long-term treatment. I just wrote a recommendation actually for my very own brother the other day because he came out of prison after 30 years and he came out during the pandemic, which was a, a huge setup for someone to come out and not be able to have the supports to help them acclimate back into society. And then he became addicted to drugs. And so my recommendation for him is at least 18 months to two years mm -hmm. of drug treatment so that he could get a foundation, he can get stabilized. And, you know, he's doing well in the Westchester County Jail right now. They have a drug program. He has access to different things that he tells me about. And he's, he's buying into it. I mean, you don't have that much time, Levy 60. You got to hurry up now. <laughs> you got okay. to do what you need to do. You can't be playing around here. 
And, you know, I was waiting any day for them to say he was dead Mm -mm. because it was just that serious. So I believe that a lot of times clients won't accept that recommendation. And one final question for you, Paul. What should the talk between parents and their children be about this new drug, fentanyl or any type of drug? First of all, you have to talk to talk to them, period. And that's one big issue is a lot of parents don't talk. And, and, you, right. and, you, and you need to. I think a lot of parents assume it's not, not me, not my child, not my, you know, my, my child would never until it's too late. So that, that's the first issue is you have to have a conversation, period. And I, I don't know if there's a, a right or wrong way to go about it, but I think you, you certainly have to talk to the children and discuss it, you know, truthfully about what, what's going on because the drugs are around. They're exposed to them. And it, unfortunately, it's happening at a younger and younger age. So you, ha- you have to be prepared to talk to your children about the effects and what, what it's going to do. You know, so it's definitely a talk that needs, needs to be had and should be had. And you certainly want to talk to kids in an appropriate manner to get, to get them talking about it. I think talk, getting them talking about it is half the battle. And, you know, there's the CASAC, the Credential Alcohol Substance Abuse Counselor mm-hmm. um, Certification, but there's also a prevention certification. So there's prevention specialists and prevention professionals. So they're similar to like the D.A.R.E. program that used to go into the schools. Mm -hmm. So the prevention specialists go in with evidence-based curriculum that deal with this topic. So because our children spend that amount of time at school, that needs to be attended to in terms of education and really, you know, giving the kids the real deal about, you know, what it is so that they because now it's, it's serious. Um, It's always been serious, but it's real serious. So I believe, you know, it takes a village and and it it takes all of the systems that the children are involved with. And then it takes the parents to become educated because some of them aren't educated. So they don't even know how to talk to their children about anything. And so even in substance abuse, we have parent groups, you know, to educate Mm -hmm. the parents about the addiction and how to best support their loved one. And then there's also Al-Anon, which is 12-step programs for family members to gain insight and information. And then there's the website, right? There's so much information that people can really gain and gather to understand. So we've got a battle on our hands. I had another question. I know I have this question for my students sometimes. Do you think that just use of marijuana, is that still a gateway drug or not? Well, I think it's, it still is. And, and, you know, when you talk to mo- most, you know, drug addicts, when you talk to them, they started with marijuana first and then, and then worked their way into something else. So, I mean, does that mean everyone who uses marijuana becomes a heroin addict? No, of course not. But when you talk to hardcore addicts, they frequently tell you they started with marijuana. And do you think that marijuana would be something that they would lace with fentanyl? Definitely. Yeah, I know, absolutely. <laughs> we see marijuana laced with many things. Anything, yeah, uh, right. you know, we've seen marijuana laced with PCP. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's why you got to be so, so, so careful of what's actually in it. I know some people say, you know, marijuana is harmless and all that. But, you know, especially if it's laced with something like that, mm-hmm. it can be, it's detrimental. And you know, you certainly don't want to go near anything like that. And it's starting to be a rise in just the emergency room visits from marijuana because of that fact that it's laced and it's, you know, chemical treated with whatever is mixed and they don't know. And some of them, you know, 
show up for a marijuana intoxication or poisoning because they've smoked so much and overloaded yeah. their system. Most of the marijuana stores in New York City are, are still illegal. There's only like three legal ones. So well, a lot of these stores that popped up aren't legal, so you have no idea what they're actually selling. That's something a lot, that a lot of people don't really realize. So when they presented the emergency room with um, marijuana tax, what are some of the symptoms that they're showing? Paranoia, um, what we call a substance-induced hallucinating, you know, um, substance-induced psychosis. So the PCP in marijuana has that, you know, psycho uh, effect on individuals. So when many times when they show up and they're so afraid, their heart is racing and, you know, they're having difficulty breathing and they're, you know, seeing things, they're going to tell, <laughs> they're going to tell the hospital personnel everything that they've done because <laughs> they want, they, they're going to say, I took everything, please help me, you know, but for the most part, I believe just because a lot of the young people and older ones believe marijuana is legal state and federal, and it's not. And so they think that they could just smoke it and it's just harmless, but it's going to do. And that's what I teach with PASAC, that you have to be convinced as a, a counselor that addiction is addiction and that any mood altering substance has the capacity to alter your brain functions or the, the neurochemistry in your, you have to be convinced of that to know that if a person continues to even smoke marijuana, they are setting themselves up for addiction because so long, you know, it was that marijuana is not addictive. But when we look at the more recent studies and just listening to some of our clients, you know that there's an addiction that has taken place and has the capacity to. Well, before we close out, I just wanted to ask if there's anything either of you would like to add that you feel the public needs to know and we didn't address about drugs and fentanyl. Well, one, th one thing I will tell you is that in most police departments now, they have overdose teams. What these do is when someone overdoses, they respond. And what they're trying to do specifically is figure out where did this person actually buy the drugs and from whom and arrest mm -hmm. that person. That's, that's the goal right. is to figure out and to stop basically this um, drug from being sold. And that's, and that's something that's going on here in New York City and most cities now are doing it. That reminds me, or makes me mindful. Remember the actor from the, um, I forgot that show. He died of a heroin overdose, and then they arrested the dealer shortly after. I wondered how they came about that. Yeah, that's how. So they'll, they'll so they'll, I mean, they'll get his phone. That's the first thing you're going to do is get the decedent's phone mm -hmm. and look at who his last calls were. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky and you'll see. His last text message was, you know, I want two dimes. <laughs> you know, and, and you look at who he's, who he's been right. calling, who he's, he's, he has been uh, dealing with and see if they can figure it out. I, I, yeah, so that's how that's typically done. And they'll see where the guy's been. Somebody's phone is a treasure of information. It'll right. tell us not only just who he's called, but also where he's been. So you can use that to kind of track somebody's movements and kind of figure <laughs> out where they went, where they got the drugs. And then they'll specifically target it. And also, you know, very often you'll have a glassine that was left behind. The glassines typically have a brand name on them, whatever it is, and they can track that as well to figure out who sold it to them. And then, you know, you try to catch the deal. Was it just, I think that was like Michael K. Williams yes, that, I think that's who it was. The mm -hmm. dark skin. And they did, they did get yeah. his dealer. Is it, After a while, 
Yes, the guy from The Wire. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. And they also even got the dealers from those overdoses in New Jersey. Yeah, too. No, that's like, they did it the exact same way. That's the one with the mm-hmm. cell phones, whoever, whoever it was that actually ordered the drugs. Most typically, drugs are ordered, you know, on the phone these days. Just call a number and they deliver it to you. So yep. it's useful, and you know, once you're dead, you know, they can get your phone very easily. And, 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 <laughs> oh God! So, <laughs> okay. Well, Director Razor, oh, do you yeah. have something else that you want to add that we didn't talk about? No, I think this is good. This is a topic that is an ongoing conversation that you know has to be discussed, even with our students and just. Others, I mean, you know, having different forums to present the information so they'll have, because a lot of what individuals think they know, they don't know, you know. So I get that a lot, even in assignments, like, oh, my God, I never knew this because people just go by old wives tales or, you know, different customs and beliefs that they just hand it down and they don't do fact finding. So I think it's, this is good. So I think it's a good thing. Thank you so much for inviting me, Professor Foreman. Well, thank you, Director Razor and Dr. Lickbaum, for um, participating today and giving us information on narcotics and drug use and overdoses and why people need to stay away from them and understand that so many different things can be laced with fentanyl that our children need to know that young people need to learn about these things before they try things. In conclusion, I just want to say that our next podcast of True Crime here at Monroe College will be on domestic violence and we hope that you join us for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.